You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. The outcome that we're really wanting is people to feel more empowered and to feel that they can participate and have a voice in their communities. And whether that leads to improvement in health or in car crashes or in whatever outcome might not be a realistic way of of affecting. It's, It's really hard to change this outcome. Six years ago, the Transparency for Development Project sought to uncover new and unique evidence in the role of community-led transparency and accountability in improving health outcomes, and how and why we see mixed evidence when these interventions are implemented in the real world. Based on large-scale mixed methods research utilizing quantitative and qualitative approaches in two countries, Indonesia and Tanzania, and small innovative pilots in three additional countries, Ghana, Malawi, and Sierra Leone, the project now has a lot more information about how these popular approaches to citizen engagement and participation work, and ways in which they can fail to reach their goals. On Wednesday, September 25th, the Transparency for Development team shared results, including the good, the bad, and the unclear, from this one-of-a-kind research project and discussed what is needed next in the field. The conversation included principal investigators from the Transparency for Development project, Dan Levy, senior lecturer in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, Stephen Kosak, visiting associate professor of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, and Jessica Crichton, assistant director. Jane Mansbridge, Charles F. Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values at Harvard Kennedy School, moderated. My name is Arkan Fung. I'm a faculty member here and work on democracy programs at the Ash Center. I am very delighted to welcome our illustrious panel, which is chaired and moderated by my good friend uh, Jane Mansbridge, who's the Charles F. Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values. She has studied participatory democracy all over the United States and in many part of the parts of the world. As a matter of fact, she's just coming back from North Texas with a fascinating project in uh, looking at citizen deliberation. And this is the rest of the team, which I think Jenny will introduce. And I just want to uh, welcome everyone to uh, talk about, discuss, reflect upon this project that these people and myself have spent the last five or six years invested deeply in. Let me hand it over to Jenny. Okay. Um, glad you're all here because I consider this a very exciting project. So I'm going to just introduce our three folks. Jessica Creighton is based at the Ash Center, and she's assistant direction, director of the Transparency for Development Project T4D. Isn't that a cool logo? <laughs> uh, she's managed the project in 2013. In addition to project management, she contributes to intervention design, research design, and writing. And before joining the T4D team, she provided field management and research assistance to the Reconciliation, Conflict, and Development Project, which is a a randomized control trial also, with Innovations for Poverty Action in Sierra Leone. And she holds an EDM, an international education policy from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. So Steve Kosak is Associate Professor of Public Policy and Governance at the University of Washington, Seattle, a senior research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and one of the principal investigators of this project. Steve is a political scientist who focuses on how governments become more responsive and effective for citizens without unusual wealth, status, or connections. He received his PhD in political science in 2008 from Yale, and previously he was advisor to the late Senator Ted Kennedy, 
and a research fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, and taught at Brown, the London School of Economics, and here at the Kennedy School. Dan Levy is a senior lecturer at the Kennedy School, and he's an economist by training, and he's been involved in evaluations of social programs for the past 20 years in a variety of contexts, including Jamaica, Mexico, Burkina Faso, and Niger. So we've got quite a team here, and they've got some very interesting stuff to tell you. All right, well, thank you so much, everybody, for coming to this uh, exciting culmination of, I'd say, seven, more than seven years of uh, research and, and a lot of efforts besides. Um, the talk today is based on contributions from many, many different folks. A um, couple of pictures of uh, some of the core team members here. Um, also highlighting that we're a very diverse group of researchers and practitioners, as well as folks with many different methodological uh, um, backgrounds and dispositions. Um, so <laughs> some of us have uh, some uh, quite a bit of res uh, research experience with RCTs, and uh, uh, I, among them, have uh, a lot of experience and disposition toward qualitative methods. Um, so I, I, it's a huge uh, undertaking we're going to be talking about today, and I want to just highlight a couple of the other uh, entities and folks involved. Um, we're in, in, we have uh, done our research in five countries, and our partner organizations, Patero in Indonesia, Chai in Tanzania, uh, the Center for Democratic Development in Ghana, uh, the Malawi Economic Justice Network in Malawi, and um, WashNet uh, in Sierra Leone have been hugely instrumental to all the work I'm going to discuss. Uh, a lot of our data was collected by a number of firms that were equally dedicated, SurveyMeter in Indonesia, Ideas in Action in Tanzania, and we had independent researchers in Ghana, Malawi, and Sierra Leone. We have an exceptional steering committee and advisory committee who have been with us from the beginning. And uh, last but not least, our uh, incredibly generous and supportive funders, the Gates Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, and the UK Department for International Development. Um, there's our website. There's a lot more than uh, we can possibly discuss today on that website. So I want to start us off with a very inspiring story uh, that has um, been a big part of uh, a lot of the work in this field, and including our own, uh, from Uganda in 2004. So uh, in that year, there was an, ex uh, an amazing governance intervention um, implemented in uh, a number of communities uh, that basically provided uh, information and facilitated discussions to community members um, about the quality of their maternal and newborn health care services. And this uh, intervention, this program, was evaluated in a famous randomized controlled trial that year um, and found that it uh, led to pretty astounding um, improvements in care. A 33% reduction in infant mortality rates just a year later, big increases in utilization, all kinds of other very positive things. And just from two rounds of village meetings that encouraged communities to be more involved with the state of their health services and strengthened their capacities to hold those health providers accountable. So typically, we think of this kind of participation as coming from inside a community, originating organically. But with the global push for more participation, more participatory development, 
there have been a lot of moves as well to try to encourage more of this kind of participation, more effective participation. Um, often, this comes with or is encouraged by additional resources or authority. So some of you will be familiar with community-driven development programs, which try to give foreign aid directly to communities um, to spend it rather than on um, uh, programs designed from outside. Um, others of you will be familiar with participatory budgeting initiatives, which give money uh, to, uh, or at least uh, the discussion of money, how to spend money to people in communities, um, rather than having bureaucrats or politicians figure out how to spend it. Uh, Archon has uh, kind of labeled this style of participation empowered participation. But uh, there are, as anyone who's familiar with this world knows, uh, some real questions about this kind of effort, um, especially around how uh, outsiders and those developing and implementing development programs can sustainably empower communities uh, without, with these kinds of resources or authority without creating um, conditions of dependency and uh, other kinds of incentives that drive them away from what they ultimately care about. So um, the kind of approach that I just outlined that happened in Uganda is a kind of interesting middle ground here. Uh, it does not originate from inside a community, so it's externally encouraged. Uh, and yet it doesn't offer any additional resources or authority to communities. Uh, and so tries to rely on their innate willingness and capacities to uh, improve their public services. And that's the kind of approach that we're going to be focused on today. So for the last seven years, uh, my colleagues and I have been engaged in an effort to try to understand uh, this sort of approach. This sort of approach has gotten a lot of interest. It's tried uh, around the world by dozens, if not hundreds, of organizations. Um, and there have been, other than the Uganda study, a number of other uh, investigations into its effectiveness. And they have been decidedly more mixed. So enter our study, um, which is designed to offer evidence of whether these kinds of approaches, transparency and accountability programs, can improve outcomes, as well as how why uh, and through what mechanisms and in what contexts? It's a pretty unique uh, mixed method, multi-country study. Um, our first phase, which we're going to be mostly focused on today, is uh, two very large randomized controlled trials in Tanzania and Indonesia, each involving 100 communities, um, as well as 100 control. Uh, and then I'll, we may, in the Q&A if we have time, briefly touch on a second phase it's much smaller studies uh, using an adapted design in Ghana, Malawi, and Sierra Leone. <clears throat> Mentioned I'll be focused mostly on, on uh, we'll be focused mostly on Tanzania and Indonesia today. Uh, so as part of this, we uh, have tested, or we are testing uh, a new sort of approach that's based on the community scorecard design that. Uh, was shown to be so effective in Uganda in 2004, um, but which we spent a lot of time with local partners in Indonesia and Tanzania, uh, kind of redesigning, co-designing, and iterating uh, to make sure that it kind of met basic assumptions about its uh, about the approach, uh, but was also widely relevant to many different contexts and scalable, so that it's the sort of thing that could be implemented in a hundred randomly selected places. 
Um, so along with that, we had a couple of goals. Uh, one was that it be scalable and relevant to lots of different problems on the logic that every community's problems were likely to be different. Uh, second, we designed it to be non-prescriptive and focused uh, solely on encouraging participants in the program to develop and then work on the approaches that they thought would work in their communities on the logic that what's likely to work, the kind of participation that's likely to work to improve public services in one place may not work in another. Uh, and third, free of outside resources or additional authority so that it's encouraged participation, not empowered or, or organic or community-driven development. The end result uh, was, after a lot of other different design decisions and testing, piloting, is a series or was a series of six meetings in which a facilitator invited uh, interested community members to come discuss information that the facilitator had gathered in the previous couple of weeks uh, about the quality of maternal and newborn health care services in their community, uh, access to it, uh, subjective and objective information about, about its quality, uh, and then where they took participants through a kind of process of developing a plan of activities that they could undertake to improve any problems that they perceived or that the, uh, that the information revealed. And what we're going to be discussing today is basically an attempt to see that this sort of approach is effective enough uh, that you can essentially randomly pick communities to offer it and it will on average be effective in improving their maternal and newborn care. To do that, um, for the health side of this, we're going to be relying on a basic logic model uh, in which the sort of approach I just, just outlined, which we can think of as the inputs in this logic model, uh, might, we hope, uh, lead to uh, some communities at least undertaking activities that they planned and thought would help to improve their maternal and newborn health care. Those activities would then result in uh, one of three kinds of uh, improvements, either increasing the demand for health services, improving the patient experience, uh, or improving the health facility. And, you know, those in turn then lead us to uh, good, good things. Service outcomes uh, such as increased utilization or improved contents of care, uh, and ultimately to improve maternal and newborn health care outcomes like hopefully reductions in infant mortality and other uh, good things that uh, great health care can deliver. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jessica um, to start us off on the results. Thanks, Steve. Hi, everyone. OK, so you just heard Steve explain the promise in the T4D project and describe the intervention program. Um, so before I get started, I have a question for all of you, um, which is, do you think that the T4D program successfully encouraged participants to design and implement social actions? Um, so this is basically that first link in the logic model that Steve just showed you. Um, this and is our guess, right? Yeah, your guess. Yep. So you can vote um, using this link here on your phone. I should have prepared you for this. Sorry. Well, sorry you can't see it, but um, it looks like 85% of you said yes, and 15% of you said no. All right, so let's find out. The answer is yes. That's your guess. So before I get into the actions themselves, um, let me just first talk about meeting participation because it was at program meetings that community participants were encouraged to design and revise these social actions that they undertook. 
Um, using a few different metrics, we see that participation in meetings was relatively high and sustained throughout the T4D program. Uh, for one, meeting attendance was high throughout, though it did taper somewhat. Um, the average number of participants per village in the first meeting was 14 in Indonesia and 15 in Tanzania, and 11 and 10 respectively at the final meeting. And just so you know, the intention was for about 15 um, community members to, to participate in this in each village. Um, we had observers sit in on some of these meetings to count how many times people spoke distinctly. Uh, we see that participation levels as measured by percentage of people who spoke distinctly at least once per meeting started high in both countries. Um, though participation declined in Tanzania, um, still by the final meeting, a solid two-thirds of attendees were participating. And then depth of meeting participation, as measured by the average times participants spoke per meeting, was steady in Tanzania and even grew over time in Indonesia. All T4D communities planned social actions. The minimum number was two, and most planned several. And in Indonesia, one community even planned 17. So that's quite a few. Most also at least attempted these actions. In fact, participants in all but 11 communities across the two countries reported completing at least one action. Um, and this was certainly not guaranteed considering the T4D intervention program was voluntary and participants were not paid to undertake the action. Now let me describe some examples of these actions. Uh, so photo one here is of a complaint box um, that a community in Tanzania installed at uh, one of the health facilities. Um, photo two is um, the foundation for a new facility that a community in Tanzania started to build. Um, number three is um, in Indonesia, and this is community members coming together to plant a medicinal herb garden at one of the health facilities. And number four is a poster from an informational campaign um, in one of the Indonesian communities, and on it is posted the um, duty schedule and contact information for the midwife, uh, the contact information and names of all of the community representatives or the people who participated in this program, um, and also um, some information from the scorecard about um, the uptake of health services in these communities. So not only did communities design and attempt social actions, um, as I just illustrated, these actions were diverse in nature. Uh, one question we had when designing the T4D intervention was whether communities would each design actions unique to their circumstances or whether they would all converge around a small number of action types. What we saw was a wide range of actions with 43 distinct goals, which we were able to classify into the 12 pathways on this slide. You'll see that despite the wide range in actions, there was one striking similarity across nearly all T4D communities. 93.5% designed at least one action aimed at increasing awareness, knowledge, or community attitudes. Um, more specifically, these tended to be education or socialization campaigns. Um, the next most common pathway was improved facility access, which included attempts to build or request a new health facility, advocating for ambulance services, fixing roads, organizing or advocating for outreach services, and arranging, arranging community-organized transportation. Our analysis uncovered a few additional trends. Firstly, we classified actions as either collaborative or confrontational, and found that the actions were overwhelmingly collaborative in nature. This was not driven by the volume of education actions and suggests that when a transparency and accountability program does not prescribe a particular strategy, communities will choose to be collaborative. Secondly, the majority of the actions were short route, meaning they targeted the health facility or provider directly, rather than the government officials higher up the accountability chain. Uh, this was especially true in the case of government actors above the village level. 
Our assessment is citizens um, may have been uncomfortable approaching higher level government officials or may have been unaware of or unable to navigate the formal chains of accountability above their village government or frontline service providers. And this is something we attempted to explore further in phase two of our work. Thirdly, when classified by accountability type, we found the majority of actions took a self-help approach with only about a quarter pursuing solutions through true social accountability channels. Also of note um, is that these trends and the actions themselves were remarkably similar across the two very different country contexts. Okay. And now I will turn it over to Dan to discuss Great. impact. Great. Thank you, Jessica. Okay, so uh, we saw that the um, participants designed and implemented actions. And now the big question is, did those actions translate into improvements in the well-being of the communities um, that they were being, that they were targeting? So I want to tell you a little bit about um, what were the main questions on impact that we examined. Then I'm going to tell you about what were the outcomes that we measured. And then we'll see what happened. So the question is, what is the impact of the T4D program on the key outcomes of interest? The method that we use is the randomized control trials. I see the JPAL people here uh, verifying that this was well done. I hope they will conclude that it was. Uh, where 200 communities were randomly assigned into treatment and control groups in each country. Um, the data sources were mainly household survey that we conducted at baseline and at end line. Uh, and a facility survey. The household survey, the total sample size is about 12,000 households. If you've ever collected data in a developing country, you know how challenging um, this was. Um, and um, all the results, uh, most of the results that I'm going to present are going to be based on the household survey. An important aspect of this is that we, given the nature of the intervention, we um, collected data on households who had um, a, a woman who had uh, given birth uh, in the last year. So the data that we'll show you is not going to be representative of these villages. It's going to be representative of households in these villages that had uh, um, a, a woman who had given birth recently. And then uh, in terms of integrity, we did a pre-analysis plan. Uh, in which we said we're going to measure the outcomes, we're going to measure the impacts on these outcomes. So we tied our hands so that we couldn't come here today to tell you about the three significant findings that uh, we found in some appendix uh, of our report. Uh, so what you're going to see here today is what the we're reporting on the outcomes that we tied our hands to. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the key outcomes of interest so that you have a sense, but they are derived from the logic uh, model that um, Steve presented. So there's one set of outcomes related to utilization. So did women give birth at a facility? Did women give birth with a skilled provider? And in the case of Tanzania, uh, did they do prenatal care? Um, then in terms of content of healthcare service, we had uh, content for prenatal care and delivery, and we also had content for postnatal care. Uh, then up one more level in the logic model, we also had child health, out child health outcomes. So uh, 
proportion of children who were born, um, who were stunted or underweight. And then finally, uh, we have a measure of citizens' per uh, perception of empowerment and efficacy, again, based on the, on the sample of uh, women that we interviewed. All right, so the answer, here are outcomes for Indonesia. And what you have here is I'm going to present all the outcomes to you in a single graph for Indonesia. And the line in the middle is zero effect. And what I'm going to show you is 95% confidence intervals for each of these outcomes. They're all standardized, so they're measured in effect size. So if the confidence interval overlaps with the line, it means the effect was not statistically significant. If you are not too clear on that, I see several of my students in the audience. They can <laughs> clarify this for you. Uh, so it's early in the semester, but we've done this. I have <laughs> Uh, all right, so here's birth with a skilled provider. Uh, as you can see, that confidence interval overlaps with zero, which means we cannot statistically distinguish the effect of the program on this outcome from zero. So it's not a statistically significant effect. And then I want to show you the rest of the outcomes. And this is it. I want to say one more thing about this. Uh, for those of you who are... Um, statistically inclined, you might sort of say, well, maybe there was an effect and the program and the study wasn't able to detect it. As you can see from this confident inter confidence intervals, they're pretty tight, which means that if the program had a policy-relevant effect, we would have detected it with our study. All right, so Tanzania, same story. So the big puzzle that we have now is there are all these actions that were conducted, but on average, communities saw no impact on the key outcomes that we sought to measure. Steve is going to explain why. <laughs> Good luck, Steve. <laughs> RCT is a high-wire act. So before we um, get started, let's do uh, one more elicitation of priors. Given what you just saw, the next question is, was participation, for, so for the people who came to the meetings, engaged with them, planned activities, tried those activities, saw, you know, a foundation of a new facility, a complaint box, a new herb garden, but two years later, and I think we didn't quite mention that this N-line survey in which we are judging the effects of this program uh, was conducted two years after the program. So two years later, um, or during the program itself, do you think that this process was empowering for those who did it? So uh, I'd say the split here, which is um, a bit less than our priors on whether communities uh, and participants in communities designed and implemented actions, is uh, is closer to the, the truth as well. So um, there were, so uh, yeah, so in order to understand this, we're going to dig a little more into the other methods that we used as part of the study. So in addition to the uh, surveys and observations of facilities that uh, were the basis of the results that Dan gave you, uh, in a smaller number of communities, we also asked some researchers to sit in on the meetings, 
uh, and see what the discussion was like, whether the facilitator was dominating it, whether participants were choosing uh, approaches themselves. We also um, interviewed quite a few uh, people who went to the meetings as well as others in their community about the activities. Uh, in a still smaller uh, number, we uh, had a second observer watch the individual participation, and that's the source of uh, what Jessica presented earlier on who spoke, how often, um, as well as we conducted some interviews with uh, participants before the first meeting and after the last meeting about how personally able they felt to improve uh, their community. And then in a, in a still smaller number, we asked uh, ethnographic scholars to live in the communities before, during, and after the program to get a sense of how they understood and responded to it. So that's going to be the, um, the set of information we're going to use to understand how they uh, perceive the program, uh, and particularly whether it, they perceived it as uh, their participation in it as empowering. So uh, first, um, during the, the course of the program itself, the experiences were mixed. So most started pretty optimistic that they were going to be able to improve uh, care in their community. 85% in Indonesia and 88% in Tanzania looked to the researcher who was sitting in on the meeting as though participants were optimistic. Uh, by the last meeting, the meeting six, uh, about three months later, uh, most in Indonesia were uh, still optimistic. And some had even, who started skeptical, uh, found that they had been able to uh, achieve more change than they had expected. But in Tanzania, it was quite mixed. So about half and half of those who started optimistic ended up optimistic and uh, ended up skeptical. And in uh, 17 of these 18 where they ended up skeptical, uh, the observer thought that not a single participant in the meeting was optimistic that they were going to be able to sustain improvements in their care. So uh, points to the complexity of this sort of experience. Uh, it's just six meetings, uh, but it's quite a complicated uh, experience for most of the people who, who did it. These are echoed in these individual interviews that we did before and after. So um, interestingly, we asked, so we asked the same question, how able are you to make improvements to your community? Uh, in Indonesia, participants were, were quite mixed in how, on a one to four scale, how able they felt. Uh, in Tanzania, they were much more optimistic at the start. And uh, then at the end, um, many in Indonesia reported a higher level of self-efficacy, um, very few uh, decline. Well, in Tanzania, it was, again, far more mixed, and, and more uh, stayed the same. Uh, that was during the program. Now, uh, we interviewed them again two years later to see what participating in the program was like. Uh, in the interim, you could imagine all kinds of things happened uh, after the facilitator left for the, the final time. Interestingly, uh, by the end, the reflections on participation in the program had changed from this mixed story to being almost universally positive. So... Um, First, in almost all communities, uh, most of the people who ended up attending these meetings had quite a detailed recollection of what they had done and how it had worked or not worked. Um, they tended to recall at least one activity that they thought had been successful, but many also thought at least one thing they had tried had not been successful. And then reflecting overall on what uh, the results of their activities, 83% uh, of communities in Indonesia and 95% of communities in Tanzania Participants generally thought that their activities overall had improved healthcare in their community. So, how do we understand this disconnect? I'm going to briefly give you five reasons. 
that the perceptions of participants differed from the perceptions uh, that we, or sorry, the, the objective information that we gathered for the null impact that Dan described earlier. Five reasons. So first, the uh, participants' approaches that Jessica described earlier were not unusual. In fact, uh, for the most part, similar things were also happening in the control communities. The program was designed to uh, encourage participants to design the approaches that they thought would work best in their community, and they tended to use or uh, rely on what they knew, which was uh, all the kinds of activities that Jessica outlined earlier. So only um, three of the dozen or so categories of approaches that Jessica outlined uh, were different, were uh, more common statistically uh, in the um, treatment group of communities. And some of these were only barely significant. Uh, in Tanzania, there were more of these kinds of activities overall. But in Indonesia, there weren't even that. So there are basically a similar number of these kinds of activities um, in uh, the treatment and the control group. Second, um, when we uh, asked two years later why participants thought that they had improved healthcare in their community, the uh, Results were often a bit vague. Um, in, in many, they, they recalled tangible improvements that they could see from uh, their activities and that they remembered two years later. Uh, but that was less than half. So uh, just to unpack this a little bit, the numbers I showed you earlier, uh, most th recalled uh, attempting at least one activity in both Indonesia and Tanzania. Most thought that they had at least one activity that was successful, and most thought that they had improved care in their community. When we tried to unpack this a bit and see um, if we could think that the activity was successful in the sense that it achieved its goal, uh, we had a, a much smaller number, so a much more stringent standard here, um, but we had a much smaller number, a little under 50% in both. And some of these activities were the kind that wouldn't result in some kind of a tangible improvement, like... Uh, just a one-off cleaning campaign of the facility. So when we looked again to see uh, whether they recalled achieving something tangible like a uh, new ambulance, um, more staff, uh, uh, complaint box, or um, improved access to this, uh, like say a new road to the facility, the numbers were even smaller. So 41% of communities in Indonesia and 30% in Tanzania recalled something tangible that they had achieved as a result of their activity. So less than half. Uh, now, less than half is not nothing, right? So I think that's, that's important to note here. So this wasn't enough on average to move the ball on health outcomes, but it also wasn't nothing. Um, similarly, uh, much of the activity seems to have occurred for most communities during the course of the program. So in only about a quarter of communities, participants kept meeting long after the program ended, after the facilitator left for the last time. Uh, in, actually, in, in uh, Indonesia, I think it was around 14%, and Tanzania, about a quarter, had met sometime within the last six months. 8% uh, in Indonesia and 14% in Tanzania had met within the last two months. So again, not nothing, and remember that this was just a series of six meetings. Participants were not paid. They were not given any resources. So it's interesting that that number were still meeting and engaged in activities later. But it's still far from a majority. So it uh, helps, again, to explain some of this disconnect.
the fourth thing I want to point to is that uh, although um, we often, as researchers, like to think that when we do an intervention, it is uh, kind of the first time that any sort of thing like this has ever happened in these places. That's almost never true. Uh, and uh, there's very good evidence from our surveys, and uh, especially from our ethnographic work, that uh, the perception of this program, the experiences of this program, was very influenced by the memories of past programs that these people had experienced, uh, especially that development programs typically pay and they typically offer resources. So a program like this, which uh, offers no pay and no resources, uh, was against early expectations. And it took some time for those uh, to be worked out and led to some very severe disappointment in several, where they, when they learned that there would be no resources. And uh, in at least one of the eight communities where we asked ethnographic scholars to Live, uh, this was this disappointment was basically um, dispositive. That there uh, was no more activity after they realized that there would be no re resources. Now, in most, that wasn't the case. Eventually, a group uh, kind of came to understand the the goals of the program as being different than what they had expected. Uh, went with that and found the experience to be empowering. Seven of the eight in the ethnographic uh, of the ethnographic uh, communities where we had ethnographic scholars that eventually happened, but it wasn't for everybody, and it it took a little while in some cases. The final uh, thing I want to point to is that uh, many of the benefits of participating in the kind of the more empowering side of it uh, were personal and um, not related to having improved care. So we asked participants whether they were glad that they participated in this program, um, and it was almost universally the case that they said that they were. We asked them if they had experienced personal benefits as well as whether they had experienced personal costs. Uh, there were some who had said they experienced personal costs. Um, it was uh, less than a third in both places where anyone said that. Uh, and there were things like, well, this was a waste of time. We didn't get anywhere. Or we were treated suspiciously by others in our community who either thought uh, we were trying to improve care that they didn't really care about or that we were being paid and uh, not doing this as a kind of voluntary thing as, uh, um, as we, they ended up being. Uh, so those were the kind of costs, and they were pretty... There were some who experienced that, but almost all said that they had experienced personal benefits as well. And uh, some of these uh, were pride in the things that they had achieved. So new ambulance, new facility, new staff, seeing uh, men accompany their wives to the facility and being treated better when they got there. Uh, many expressed pride in achieving those things. But some, uh, an equal number actually, also expressed uh, some sorts of more personal benefit, like learning new information, or being able to speak publicly about community issues, um, which were certainly empowering to them, but had little to do with the effect of their activities on care in their community. So uh, just to end here, we have kind of three types of experiences, if you kind of break it down very uh, abstractly. There were uh, a sizable number, but not uh, certainly enough to move the ball, where um, the uh, community members who participated in this program both perceived that they had um, had some role in improving healthcare in their community and uh, remembered some sort of a tangible improvement that they had achieved. And in those, you can say that participating was empowering as well as helpful, maybe, for improving their care, although definitely usually not transformative, so not enough to show up in our, um, our measures two years later. 
Um, in a, an equally maybe or even slightly larger number of communities, uh, there was a perception of efficacy, but no memory of actually achieving anything tangible. And in those, we could say that um, there was either a kind of placebo where, so healthcare generally was improving, outcomes were improving in these communities. And so they could have thought that was the result of my activities, even though there was very little connection between those activities and the improvement. Uh, it could have been uh, partly a performance related to expectations of future resources that they were doing for the facilitator. It could have been something more personal, and it could have been uh, something else. And this is something we're exploring a lot more right now in our other work. Uh, and then in a small number of communities, uh, there was neither a perception of efficacy nor uh, any memory of any sort of tangible improvement. And in those, we can say that participating in the program was disappointing. With that, I want to ask the final question. Given all of this, do you think <laughs> we should use transparency and accountability to improve health? Yes. 63% yes, 30% no. Interesting. Or 30% not sure. Only 7% no. Okay, well, that sounds like a good entree to a discussion. Thank you very much. Before we, before we start, I just want to uh, turn this on. I, I, I just want to make my own small comment, which is that you're commendably cautious about your results. And I, I am completely convinced that you didn't affect birth weight. But I'm, but I'm thinking that, you know, an ambulance, um, a new road, these things aren't nothing. And if, if in your own assessment, not just their optimistic assessment, but if you're in your own assessment, 30 to 41% did something, that seems pretty good to me. Um, yes, it didn't affect birth weight in, within the year, and it might not ever affect birth weight, but it might affect other things. So I, I, it doesn't seem as, it doesn't seem, I read the paper as well. And the paper is <laughs> sort of, the affect is low. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, I thought, wait a minute, guys, you actually did something. So. Can I just add a caveat? On, so the perceptions I gave you on tangible improvements are their perceptions. So they're their memories. Oh, when we then go to verify, yeah. uh, with so we can only do this in a smaller number of communities where we had key informant interviews. That's 60 of the 200. Uh, in those where we try to verify with other data sources that there's a memory in the community of this improvement, um, we have some evidence in the surveys that we did, uh, the number's uh, going to be less than 20%. <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to be It's not enough to move the ball on average. <laughs> 30 to 40, 41% thinking we got something done, um, even if you couldn't actually verify what they got done, I think is good. So, but questions and comments, and so do you want to take the questions? Uh, yeah. like, okay. My name is Monica. I'm from the School of Public Health. I'm also from Indonesia. So thank you very much for the very interesting presentation. Um, I, I have two questions. First, uh, I'm still trying to understand why community participation is a proxy for transparency and accountability. And then second, who are the participants of the meeting? You said the average of the participants are about 15 people in a meeting. And I think a village in Indonesia has 2,000 to 3,000 people. How could like 15 people represent um, the total population? Thank you. Thank you so much for the presentation. My name is Aki. I'm also from Indonesia. Uh, 
the, from the Kennedy School. Uh, so I have two questions as well. Uh, the first one, uh, do you mind talking uh, or explaining more about the gender dimension of the intervention? I know my understanding is this program was designed not as a gender transformative program, but when uh, I went to these communities, I saw like a lot of the community leaders who were involved, uh, who participated in the program were women. And I guess because of the focus on maternal health, uh, uh, I think it's just uh, very intuitive for uh, for this program to ha to have like some kind of gender uh, dimension related to it. Uh, and my second question, uh, my understanding is that there was a conference in Indonesia where uh, the team presented this uh, this findings to stakeholders back in Indonesia, uh, considering that the the key outcomes that there's no uh, impact on key outcomes. How did the government of Indonesia, especially, I knew. Uh, I know the Ministry of Village was involved. Uh, how did they respond to this, uh, uh, the results? And uh, what some of the key takeaways that the government can learn from the study? Thank you. Um, memory would be taxed very heavily if we take more questions without answering them first. So thank you. I think Steve and Jessica are better positioned here. Sure. Um, and may actually bring in some of our colleagues as well if they're willing to contribute to this discussion. Um, so, uh, so let me answer the question first about community engagement or participation being a proxy for transparency and accountability. Um, I think w one of the ideas of transparency and accountability programs is that they uh, encourage or engage uh, citizens in participating in improving public services. Um, in fact, some of the, the field is called Transparency and Accountability and Participation, TAP. Uh, and the idea of this sort of program is that by providing information in the form of a scorecard about the quality of care and then um, encouraging community members to uh, take uh, action to try to improve that care, that that may lead to some sort of accountability uh, of the healthcare to their needs, so an increasing kind of responsiveness. Um, and that is the causal dynamic that a lot of uh, researchers are interested in exploring because it's not clear. It's a very long causal chain to, to get there. Uh, and so that's the kind of uh, a question that we have been asking and many others in the field as well. So it's not a proxy for, it's a sort of uh, mechanism through which you might get transparency leading to accountability and more responsive public services. Um, so the transparency is the scorecard. The transparency is the, the scorecard. The accountability, that word accountability, would be the upper level officials, which you say a very small percentage, less than 10%, actually mm -hmm. moved. What they did was more participatory things. Right, so that wouldn't right. be called accountability. Right. right. That, that's part of your point, right? Yes, Transparency is right. there, mm -hmm. but the accountability, at least in our formal and our normal sense of the word, was right. only a small part of what he's got as outcome. Now you could, and I, you know, Jessica mentioned that about that right? a quarter was social accountability, and that's because a lot more than just eight percent, ten percent, did try to engage with their frontline providers, and that was another form of accountability. Um, but it's true to say that when you think of accountability as accountability of top-level governance to citizens' needs, then it was a very small proportion. And that's, again, something we're exploring in the, in the second phase. So the second question you asked, I think I'm going to uh, ask Jessica to comment on the, 
participants Sure. Themselves. As as far as who the participants were, um, we actually did um, multiple rounds of piloting to kind of figure out who should come to these meetings and whether they should just be an open invitation or if people should be purposefully recruited and you know how many and, and all of that. Um, and where we ended up um, was uh, that 15 was a good number as far as being able to kind of work with and, and manage the amount of people who were there for the facilitator to make sure that everyone in the room's voices were heard. And um, especially because they were putting together these action plans could really be part of this action planning process. Um, but as far as who these people were, um, the facilitators really made an effort to get a, a cross section of people. and. Um, with an emphasis on trying to work with kind of people who weren't necessarily um, leaders in the past or that type of thing. Tr trying to get some kind of new faces in the room um, to really understand the experiences of um, people um, with their, um, their health system. Um, but that being said, there also were some people with leadership skills and they, you know, they tried to get um, a gender balance, um, that type of thing. Um, but to, to Eki's um, point, um, especially in Indonesia, I think we saw um, the balance was definitely skewed towards women um, in, in the yeah. Less intensity. Yeah. yeah. As far as... You had a further point. The conference. You wanted to ask about the gender. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know if Jessica or Courtney maybe want to... So, uh, we were there, uh, the three of us together. Um, Last week, yes, and I'm still paying for it with the jet lag. <laughs> but it was a, actually, it was a great conference. Um, the, I will say just one word about it, that I think um, that the uh, results were to some degree disappointing um, because there was is some optimism there as well on the potential of citizen engagement to improve a lot of governance issues, um, and I think very interesting to see the deep commitment of the government to citizen engagement and the interest in, in that. Um, uh, as well as, I think, among the organizations who were there, not a huge amount of surprise that the final level outcomes didn't move. So uh, just exactly as Professor Mansbridge said, that this is not like the first time that this sort of result has happened. Um, and folks, I think, recognize that it's pretty hard to do it um, in a way that's truly empowering and gets you all the way to final level outcomes because you know you could provide support, other support or resources to do that but then that might uh, erode the initial empowerment uh, you can provide a lot of um, uh, uh, extra kind of uh, support to participants as they do this so a much longer program uh, as Jessica mentioned we, we tried that um, and found that it, it ended up Creating a bit more reliance on the facilitator, and um, there was, you know, so there's just there's a, a fine balance here to strike, and I think given the uh, way that it seemed like civic participation was most effectively encouraged, uh, it wasn't hugely surprising that it didn't lead to final level outcomes. Yet I think there was some interest and in, maybe even excitement around the um, generally positive experience that participants seemed to have. And uh, just as um, Professor Mansbury was saying earlier, some excitement in that at least a minority of communities, they had uh, some uh, association of their activities with tangible improvements. I don't know if that's a decent summary of... Lots of hands. Uh, let's take another couple, one, two, and then we'll get to that. Hi, my name is Jane, also from Indonesia, from HCAS. <laughs> um, 
I was just wondering, you started with uh, an inspiring story about how it worked in Ghana and how it... Uganda. Uganda. Oh, yeah, Uganda. Uganda and how it decreased maternal mortality rates by 33%. And why did it work there and not in Tanzania and Indonesia? Hi, uh, my name is Shabir Chima. I'm a senior fellow here at the center. Um, my question concerns your impact and the determinants of that, that impact that you try to explain. My, my feeling is that maybe, and I didn't read the paper, I apologize for that, uh, just listening to you. Uh, my feeling is that uh, participation is a means to an end and, 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 and in itself as well. And we cannot generalize about participation without de- doing some kind kind of multi-level institutional analysis. At least I didn't find that in, in your presentation. If the participation is low, maybe the reason is not the community. Maybe the reason are the environmental factors. Uh, and, uh, and I would have thought that uh, you would uh, give an explanation about this uh, low impact. Thank you. Sure. Um, I guess... So this is something, the question about, uh, I think they're related questions, actually. Um, that they're, uh, why uh, in some contexts you see huge improvement and in others you don't. Um, so one uh, hypothesis that we're exploring is that the context matters in both uh, institutional, political institutional context, as well as the healthcare context. So the healthcare system in Uganda in 2004 was just worlds away from the healthcare system in Indonesia today. Um, It's much worse. Yeah. So uh, infant mortality rates in Uganda at the time were well over 100. Uh, In Indonesia today, or at least at the time of the study, it's 28. Um, So this is just a much more capable system. So we had a a panel at the American Political Science Association a couple of weeks ago where we brought together some of the other scholars who have done work. um, uh, And there are actually quite a number of RCTs now that have been done on this work. And it does seem like there's, uh, at least among two of the studies out there, some consistency that in systems where there's uh, lower uh, rates of infant mortality, there's just more potential for community engagement of this kind to do uh, some work on its own. And that as uh, a system gets more mature, uh, more of the solutions require some sort of structural response, uh, which means that um, there needs to be more government engagement. And as you'll recall from what uh, Jessica presented, very little of the activities involved higher levels of government. So this um, is something that we are exploring as uh, in our second phase, which maybe it gives me a chance to talk quickly about that. Um, in that in that phase, in the small studies in Uganda, uh, I'm sorry, in, in Ghana, uh, Sierra Leone, and in Malawi, uh, we added um, uh, a, a group of officials who had expressed some willingness uh, and interest in engaging with communities to try to uh, help them with what they were doing in order to improve the quality of their care. And this does seem to lead to two uh, things that you might expect, given what I just said. One is uh, that more of the activities did try to engage with officials, um, so quite a bit more. It was 60% in 
both Ghana and Sierra Leone. Uh, and we saw a higher rate of uh, tangible kinds of improvements. Um, so that would suggest some support for that. However, it wasn't in all three. So in Malawi, we saw neither. Um, and I, I think there are a couple of potential reasons for that. But I think it's not like this is a universally effective thing, even if you do add that additional component. Um, so that kind of gets as well to the institutional context. So you know, in designing the second phase, we had, uh, we had a, th a theory of going into this that um, it's easier to do this kind of work where providers are uh, willing to be responsive to citizens uh, and where officials are willing to be responsive to communities and citizens when they try to improve services. Um, in trying to engage with um, uh, what we called in the second phase government champions, this might just be easier in places that are more institutionally open, um, so more democratic places. And so we picked deliberately three additional countries where there, uh, you know, there are different levels of, inst of uh, institutional capacity, but they're all quite open um, and so uh, democratic. And so that, I think, you know, we hesitated to come out with a kind of claim about the institutional environment was just two countries, and we had two regions in each country, so that gives us kind of four basic institutional settings, but that's still a small number. With the addition of the second phase, we have uh, five now, five countries, and that allows us to say, will allow us to say something much more about um, the institutional environment. Hi, thanks. I'm Hannah Leslie from the School of Public Health, um, and I noticed you said a few times you felt like the intervention wasn't kind of enough to move the ball forward on health outcomes, but I'm curious if you've reflected back on your logic model. There's seems to be a very strong assumption that the type of improvements the communities can uh, do themselves or advocate for will result in improved uh, competence of care of the providers and more of that care. And that will be the right care to prevent the um, mortality that is accounting for the deaths that are, causing, that are happening now. Um, I'm curious if with the facility survey that you talked about or in the additional three countries, you have any more insight on whether uh, the types of change the communities can produce. You know, if the comment box is on the outside of the facility, what happens to the comments in it? If the facility foundation is built, who comes and staffs there? How good are they at preventing mortality? Uh, if you have any further reflections on that part of the logic model for your ongoing or future work. My name is Betsy Osborne. I'm also at the School of Public Health. And uh, many years ago, I was Asia, I was um, Indonesia uh, program director here when you were just getting this work started. So it's very exciting to see you five years on and some results and some null results. My comment is actually echoing what the fine two other people have just said. As you go forward, it would be great to see the logic unpacked a little bit more about how TAP initiatives, um, what, it, what are you thinking about how that can affect both the demand side and the supply side of, in this case, maternal and child health care? Because it seems as though there would be slightly different mechanisms. And one of the biggest challenges we know in differentiating a high-functioning health system and a, and a lower functioning health system is the basic, um, you know, showing up for work type performance of community health workers and low level health workers. So as you have an opportunity to look at this work going forward, it'd be great to see that logic unpacked a little bit on the supply side and demand side. Impact. Sure, I'll start, but um, you guys should weigh in as well. This I mean, is tailor made for Dan. <laughs> Maybe Dan should start. <laughs> I was going to say, there's, there's certainly a long causal chain here. Um, and uh, we, did make an effort to um, measure um, along the chain. So we didn't focus much on um, intermediate outcomes 
today, um, but we did measure a whole host of intermediate outcomes. Um, things like, yeah, was there a, com a comment box on the facility? Um, that, that type of thing that, that weren't the ultimate outcomes that we, um, we looked at. And we found uh, very few um, statistically significant um, in, in all of those, um, just slightly higher than, than what we would, um, that, than what would be suggested by random chance. Um, but I'll let Dan maybe describe the actions themselves and, and some of our theories around that. So I think the logic model question is a very good question. You I think it does help to put the field in perspective. This, it's not like we invented this intervention out of nowhere. The whole field is counting on uh, this interventions improving development outcomes, not just in health and education. Uh, if there's anything that I've learned in 20 years doing this kind of uh, evaluation work is that it is extremely hard to have an impact on outcomes in communities, being an external out, uh, actor and just trying to do it. You work, both, both of you worked at the School of Public Health and I'm sure you can think of many interventions that seem like, oh, of course this is gonna cause an impact on a health outcome, and they don't. Uh, starting with every time we go to a doctor, uh, they tell us to do something, we might do it, might not do it, and that might not result in our health improving, which is a very, very direct uh, intervention. So here, um, the logic was that the communities would be able to come up with actions that they themselves thought would help improve the system. Uh, I think this, this is the underlying logic of a lot of the field. Uh, I myself personally uh, feel like, well, they might know what's best for the community, but they might not know what's best for improving the health uh, outcomes in the community. Uh, at the other extreme would have been a super heavy top intervention where, all right, to improve healthcare, these are the five things you need to do. And that, I think, has also been shown not to uh, work. And so the question of What's the right balance? I don't know. It seems like if you give full choice to the communities, they select some actions that could affect health but didn't. Uh, but many actions, frankly, that don't. I mean, a lot of actions that were tried were things like an education campaign. Well, lots of education campaigns that are much more resourced than the ones they probably tried don't change health outcomes. So I think my answer to both of your questions is, uh, I guess, heavy respect and skepticism for uh, the idea that we, you know, that an intervention can move an outcome and much less so um, if the intervention uh, is designed, you know, it was co-designed with uh, local organizations, but it is very hard to move these outcomes. So both of you gotten a question unpacking the mechanisms. I think uh, we were definitely we were definitely thinking that utilization would help um, move some of these needles and in, inside the utilization. utilization giving birth at a facility, giving birth with a skilled provider. And so um, this is a debate within the team. One thing you should know is that in both countries over the study period, there were pretty dramatic changes 
countrywide on those statistics. So in Indonesia, between 2012, countrywide birth with a skilled provider increased from 79 to 86 percent. Uh, birth at a facility increased 55 to 74 percent. Um, about 12 percent and 11 percent changes in Tanzania as well. And so the baseline rate, this is what makes it very, very different from Uganda in 2005. The baseline rate is like way, way higher for utilization. And uh, the trend is the baseline pre-post is upward for both, for at least for the control countrywide, right? And so in order to have a measurable effect on the RCT, you have to beat the high baseline and the strong upward trend. Um, so I'm not so sure it was about some fundamental mistake in the logic model, other than we should have targeted, which, which you might well say, and I probably would say in retrospect, we should have targeted things that were at a lower baseline where the, where the secular trend wasn't upward. I, I have one um, <laughs> an quick anecdote to, to add um, to the point of just kind of looking a little bit more deeply at, at you know, and unpacking what was going on. Um, so we did have these key informant interviews um, that, that Steve mentioned, um, and uh, your comment about the comment box made me think of this. So in one of those communities, um, they they did successfully put a comment box on the on the um, health facility, and they um, decided that they were going to open it publicly. I guess 30 days later, and so they went to open the comment box, and they were surprised that there were no comments in the comment box. So. <laughs> be a failure of the logic. <laughs> so, Miss Christian, I'm the. School of Public Health, Center for Health Decision Science. Um, I'd love to get your perspective on these answers that people are giving. Um, obviously, the, the audience here thinks that transparency and accountability still have some impact to health. Um, the fact that your results shows null when you're reflecting back and you can do it uh, differently, would you change the intervention? Would you change the time frame? Would you change the outcome that you're looking at? Um, maybe maternal mortality, um, maternal and child health is not the right one. Maybe car crashes would be something that's shorter um, period that, um, as, as previously mentioned, that could be more easily targeted. Um, maybe scorecard and, and community meetings is not the way. Um, doesn't mean that transparency and, and, and accountability doesn't work. Just that one specific aspect that you're trying on this um, um, on this trial is not is not working at this time. So I was wondering, reflecting on these answers, and if you were able to do it differently, what would what is it that would you change? We are actually five minutes over. Hi, Katie Nave, um, alumni, and uh, worked with you all a long time ago at the very start of this project. Um, so I have a question about uh, kind of unpacking the logic model a bit more and thinking about um, kind of sub-analyses in areas, like if you think of the logic model as a decision tree and like when different pieces of it panned out, sort of where the linkage is held. And as you look at the linkages, do you see actually, and I don't know if you have the statistical power to do so, but if you've looked at sort of in areas where the linkages panned out, do you actually see these outcomes um, or even when, say, the um, transparency initiatives led to the activities, led to the comment box being used, for example, do you see in those cases that, um, that there was an impact and you just don't see it on average in the averages that you showed us? Um, so just kind of unpacking kind of some of the maybe sub-analyses and impact on the margins for the different, you know, when different aspects of the logic model held. 
Um, and then just unpacking findings a bit more when you, um, you know, I know you presented what you put in your pre-analysis plan, but at a practical level, I'm curious about whether you found any positive impacts that you maybe didn't anticipate or you didn't hypothesize in your pre-analysis plan and what the implications of those might be. Two good questions. We'll just have, have answers to those and then we'll wrap up. So um, on the first question, we're not claiming that this study should be the definitive answer on whether we should do uh, transparency interventions. Uh, so the message here is not that it shouldn't be done, but I think this should serve as a, like, it, I would say if there's one thing that characterizes the field, it's not uh, a lot of pessimism about the interventions. It's more optimism. Uh, and I think this should be, um, contribute to a dose of realism about, all right, what is it that we can expect these interventions to, to, to be able to do? Because I think, as we said before, it could be that the, the outcome that we're really wanting is people to feel more empowered and to feel uh, that they can participate and have a voice in their communities. And whether that leads to improvement in health or in car crashes or in whatever outcome uh, might not be a realistic way of, of affecting. I mean, it's, it's really hard to change um, this outcome. So. So I, I wouldn't leave this room thinking, oh, we're just saying we shouldn't do these interventions. I, but I do hope that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in making this the solution to many of society's ills. And I think this, my sense is that it should provide at least some realistic assessment of well, maybe that's not so easy to do through these interventions. I think with respect to um, Katie's question: What I, what I find, what I found sobering of this intervention or of this study is that it's not that it's not just that we didn't find impacts on, on these outcomes that we declare in our pre-analysis plan. Is that when we, when we sort of try to see the, the intermediate outcomes, by and large, we didn't see much. I mean, part is what Steve said, that these things were already happening, so maybe controlled communities were also putting in comment boxes. Um, uh, sure, you know, if you look at 100 outcomes, some of them are going to be significant, and if we were, frankly, less honest researchers, we will show you the three that we found and say, oh, this is, intervention is uh, marvelous. Uh, but that's I guess that's not who we are. Um, so, so I'll close and on that note, yep. let us thank you. You've been listening to Ashcast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.